0: Hello and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast.
1: I'm Kristen Lizenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. It's just me and you today, Kate. I know, just like old times, I've (laughs) I've missed this. Um, Me too. It's been a minute. What are the updates from the Azores? The ruins, harvest season, the animals, little witch? Let's hear it.
0: Uh, you know, autumn came on here so fast. The weather changed. It felt like overnight, uh, which really put our harvesting efforts like front and center, but we have our onions braided and hanging, um, still a few pumpkins creeping around the garden, although not too many left. We have flowers drying in the greenhouse and a bunch of seeds saved for next year. And, Although it was a much calmer harvest season than we're used to because we had so many visitors this summer, mm. yay! <laughs> um, I'm still really happy with what we've grown and just feeling so grateful to have this land to work with. Um, and my goats, who are great, by the way. Mm. And Little Witch, you asked. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you for asking. Uh, Listeners, if you tuned into our summer episode on Nostalgia Magic, we talked about the book I co-created with Caitlin Brown, Little Witch Hosts Samhain's Supper, which we didn't expect to start shipping until Yule time, but it arrived so much earlier than expected. And so although my copy is stuck in customs <laughs> as we record this, island problems uh people have been tagging little witch books and Pony hat press as their books arrive and it's just so heartwarming to see people holding uh what was just a dream not too long ago yeah so again just feeling lots of gratitude right now for the witch web
1: i just received my copy this week and Yay. listeners can confirm it's stunning so get your copy <laughs> thank you
0: thank you <laughs>
1: So what's going on on the Witch Wide Web today?
0: Well, uh, first question first. Uh, one of our listeners asked if we've been able to meet in person yet.
1: The heartbreak of my year? No. <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry. We have plans in the works, so stay tuned. Yeah.
0: Uh, honestly, it still blows my mind, but it will happen.
1: I know. It like will. The longer it goes, the funnier it gets at this point. <laughs> It's true. It's so true. Maybe in New York City. You never know. Mm, I think so. Um, and then another question here. Uh, Aaron asked us if there is an archetype that vexes us, which I think is a really interesting question. So mm. Kristen, is there?
0: Uh, yeah, you know, I try not to be vexed by archetypes because I know they represent an energy that, you know, exists within every person, every soul. Um, But yeah, I still get vexed. And <laughs> off the top of my head, I'm going to say the hero. And I think that's just because the hero is traditionally masculine. There's usually like a damsel in distress involved. Mm-hmm. And it just holds sort of like a patriarchal colonial woman must be saved by a man vibe that just like irks me you mean that doesn't excite you <laughs> <laughs> it does not you know it does not
1: listeners i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know, but I I want to like work with the hero archetype because I do think there's medicine there mm-hmm. um, but I definitely experience some resistance when I do. Um, and so what I've been doing is trying to like reimagine the hero character as a heroine in my own writing practice and just seeing how that like influences the story but also my perception of the archetype.. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, what about you? Any vexing archetypes to discuss?
1: Yeah, I'm constantly vexed. But um, <laughs> first, I really, I. I'm excited. I want you to read the Alana books by Tamara Pierce, just from like a nostalgic magic practice, but also from like heroine hero archetype now perspective. Okay. Um, I'm going to check those out. Yeah, it's going to rock your heroic world. But I I really agree. I know we've spoken in the past about my own difficulty with like the mother archetype. Mm -hmm. But I really do think that the writing and research that we've done on the podcast has really, really helped renew my relationship with that archetype which I'm, I'm really grateful for so so thank you for that and um, you know also the magician archetype maybe mm-hmm. similar mm-hmm. reasons to the hero for you like it always felt kind of like oppressive and patriarchal and maybe also mm-hmm. condescending to like yeah. my like witchy or like folkloric leanings um and i know that these things aren't mutually exclusive like in the great like truth of the thing but as far as like personal vexation it's a it's a body reaction for me so something i'm gonna have to investigate
0: yeah i'm like right there with you but we will get there yes so what are we talking about today
1: Um, everyone's favorite, curses, hexes, and also protection against malevolent magic. Yes. And honestly,
0: like always, I never know where to start because um, in this case, curses and hexes aren't something I have much experience with, but I do work with certain elements for protection and banishing and releasing, um, returning to sender. And so I started there. Love that. In preparation for today's episode, I thought I'd look up, um, you know, the quote, official definitions of curse and hex. Mm. So, Merriam-Webster says that a curse is a prayer or invocation for harm or injury to come upon one. Also, an evil or misfortune that comes as an imprecation or as retribution. You can also use it as a verb. To curse someone is to bring great evil upon. Hex was relatively similar and is often compared to being bewitched, charmed, enchanted, ensorcelled, overlooked, or struck down.
1: Great threads to start with.
0: Yeah, so much to discuss. Let's dive in. communities, protection magic goes by many names and may include rituals to bind, ward, banish, and sometimes even glamour or render invisible. But a general term for the protective measures we take in our craft is apotropaic magic. Apotropaic magic includes spells designed to defend against someone or something, prevent or deflect unfavorable circumstances, and overall, Safeguard the practitioner from harm. Apotropaic magic takes the form of utilizing charged amulets or talismans, ritualizing gestures or actions, so think hand mudras or the desire to knock on wood after saying something we don't want to happen, or displaying imagery of protective deities, angels, or guides that watch over our well-being. In season two, we did an episode on Medusa and Athena, and I think parts of the story illustrate protective magic beautifully, but also tragically, and definitely not in the kindest of ways because it's at the expense of Medusa. In that episode, I talked about Medusa's severed head and the Gorgon imagery that began appearing in response to this myth, like Gorgon coins and Gorgon-inspired artwork. Gorgon's in architecture, on shields and soldiers' protective breastplates, and even on dishes, among other places. Gorgon imagery, aka Medusa's face, aka the goddess's or moon's face, being included in all these elements and places, and especially in architecture or near the front door of a home or temple, is a form of apotropaic magic. In this instance, the snake-haired goddess whose very face turned mortals and gods to stone could also be our guardian and scare away any would-be problem visitors. Examples of apotropaic magic can be carrying good luck charms or talismans. Think of like the evil eye, a rabbit's foot, or a piece of your grandmother's jewelry. It might be using crystals like black tourmaline or black kyanite, charging protective sigils, or working with shiny objects like mirrors, scrying poles, or sun catchers to deflect unwanted energies. Also, making witch bottles, which were spell bottles comprised of nails, thorns, uh, graveyard dirt, broken glass, and sometimes urine and blood, and an assortment of other sharp, dangerous objects uh, that could be seen as a form of protection. These witch bottles were typically buried in the earth, either by your front door or the boundary of your property to discourage intruders. And while I didn't see any mention of this in my research, I also think word witchery, journaling intentions and embodying archetypes and specific energies can be a form of apotropaic magic. Although I'm going to talk about the flip side of that in a moment.
1: Um, I'm going to talk about the evil eye here in a little bit, like you mentioned, and and also listeners, we did an episode on thorns and and nails uh, in season two. So if you're interested in those topics, definitely go there. Um, and, and, Kristen, it's funny that you mentioned word witchery because as we were doing this episode, I saw your note about apotropaic magic and I was like staring at it for a while and I was like, what? Why do I know this not from here? And then I realized that it shares the Greek root word with apostrophe. So my brain kept reading it as apostrophe, which then means to turn away, which I think is just really interesting to think about from a language or spell or or spelling perspective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's so interesting. I didn't know that. But to turn away makes so much sense mm-hmm. because apotropaic magic is typically viewed as benevolent. It's not intended to harm anyone, but I do think Uh, There can be some overlap between protective magic and curses or hexes. Mm -hmm. So known as a form of malefic magic, curses and hexes are often synonymous with witchcraft in general, but only according to those who rely on pop culture, Hollywood films, and other creations born within a patriarchal era to inform them. Because according to their logic, if the witch, either as an archetype or a living, breathing human, is depicted as evil, of course her magic must be evil as well. But this is a good time to mention one of my favorite things to mention, and that is, magic is neither good nor bad, it just is. Magic is neutral, it is shaped and directed by the practitioner. We can see this with the witch bottles I mentioned earlier as a form of protective magic, because they could also be viewed as a curse depending on the practitioner and their will. In this instance, instead of using a spell bottle to mark the boundary of their property, someone wanting to inflict misery on another might bury a similar spell bottle, but with a darker intention, on someone else's land, and in doing so, seed their soil with ill intent. In the Greek and Roman worlds, as well as in Egypt, Israel, and in parts of England, if you wanted to hex someone, curse tablets were all the rage.
1: All the rage. I love that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have to ask, Kate, you just got back from Greece. Did you, like, see or hear anything about curse tablets?
1: You know, not knowingly, but I'm sure when I was walking around like the Parthenon and the Acropolis and all the kind of like land and mini museums, I do not doubt that there were many, many there.
0: share some information from the book Magic, Witchcraft, and Ghosts in the Greek and Roman Worlds by Daniel Ogden that goes into detail about these tablets. It says, cursed tablets seek, often explicitly, to bind or restrain their victims. This is reflected in the tablets by the use of reversed, twisted, or jumbled forms of writing, conventions, or imagery. They are often inscribed on lead, which is then rolled or folded and nailed, mimicking the symbolic act of being twisted or restrained. The curse is said to be acted out by ghost or underworld powers. Because of this, curse tablets are typically deposited in graves, in underground bodies of water like springs and wells, or in thonic sanctuaries. They can also be placed in a victim's home or workplace. An interesting point to note is that this book says the majority of curse tablets that have been found and deciphered, which I think right now we're sitting like around 2000 or so, but don't quote me on those numbers. But the most common reasons for someone creating a curse tablet was for either legal issues, athletic competition, love or sex, justice, which feels a little bit ironic, or simply rivals competing for something material. This book has several passages on specific curse tablets, some with pictures, which uh, maybe I'll try and share one online when this episode goes live so you all can see, but just to give you some idea, there is a passage on a curse tablet offered to the poet Augustine for a poetry competition he was in. It says he declined, though, because animal sacrifice was involved. There is another curse tablet asking for the revelation of a thief to bind the whole of Italy and specifically Rome, and then also a curse against potters, uh, basically encouraging all of their pottery to fail during Sad. the firing process. I know. <laughs> and I just thought this was so fascinating to curse an entire group of artisans, uh, but I guess that wasn't Like, that uncommon for a tradesman to want to curse another, and so they would often go after the entire community instead of one specific person. Mm. Another thing that I found noteworthy when reading the translations of these tablets is that I kept seeing, like, really familiar names— Persephone and Demeter, Hecate, Circe, all these goddesses, um, you know, that are associated with benevolence because that's how we're working with them in our own craft. But, you know, we're also talking about dark goddesses here, ones that have the power to destroy as much as they have the ability to create. And I feel like that's an important reminder.
1: Yeah, I love that perspective.
0: In addition to cursed tablets, poppets, wax, bronze, and fabric figurines, and enchanted dolls of every medium were also popular tools used by those practicing malefic magic. And this goes, you know, as far back as ancient Greece and Egypt. Although I feel the need to suggest that poppets can also be used for good, um, I think we've all seen the meme floating around that says something along the lines of like, Whoever has my voodoo doll, please massage its feet or its yeah. back or, or something like that. But I really love that reframing of what we might use uh poppets for in a magical practice. And I know many of us say voodoo doll when considering cursed puppets or effigies, but the term voodoo doll suggests a connection to Haitian voodoo, uh, when in reality the practice of manipulating dolls or puppets has, you know, been a Popular practice in many
1: magical communities for centuries. Absolutely. Um, and this brings me back to kind of maybe another talisman here that you mentioned earlier, uh, the evil eye, which has been popularized across the globe, um, especially since I just spent a week in Greece, like you mentioned before we recorded this episode. So I'd be remiss then if I just didn't mention it. But um, so I wrote this, a ritual about the evil eye last year for the Tamed Wild Box, and I believe it was in February. And I feel like this is a symbol that many of us are really familiar with, but maybe not know the origin story of it or its roots. Um, I know before writing it and doing the research, it was just something kind of like loosely known by me, but Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely become a universal symbol of protection uh, and the concept and tradition and history of the evil eye referred to as mati in Greek is especially prominent in West Asia and the Mediterranean. Some believe that the evil eye first appeared on drinking chalices in the 6th century BC in ancient Greece. So the words evil eye themselves refer to the intent look or stare from another that ends up being sort of a curse or, or a hex, and the evil eye is usually sort of coming from this place of envy or jealousy, admiration, attachment, or, or even general dislike for the other, um, and the evil eye is then kind of considered an amulet or a talisman that protects against this attention. Um, the amulet itself is usually blue or green, which is a magical color, both of them for protection, and they can also just be found in great variation. Um, and these evil eye adornments can be worn in jewelry or placed around the home, in windows, by doors, or over the hearth.
0: a really interesting hex, um, or curse, from the Library of Esoterica's witchcraft book, and I wanted to share that with our listeners today. Mm. It says, quote, "...a person's own footsteps can even be used against them. The ancient Greek philosopher Pythagoras forbade his followers from piercing footsteps with knives or nails." Footprints are believed to contain a person's lingering essence, providing a direct connection between spellcaster and target. The most common procedure is to carefully gather up the entire footprint and combine it with other spell ingredients to provide a destructive effect. Foot track magic is thought to be especially effective because of the idea that no one can escape their own tracks, but there may be exceptions. Russian witch goddess Baba Yaga famously swept away all her tracks with her broom, preventing others from harming her or knowing her business. End quote.
1: Leave it up to Baba Yaga for that mm-hmm. one. <laughs> she would find a way. Exactly. Oh, that's really beautiful, though, that quote. Um, and, and listeners, make sure you check out our interview with Jess Hundley, the, the editor of that collection in the Library of Esoterica.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what other thoughts do you have on curses and hexes?
1: Well, I'd love to touch briefly on binding for a second, just because we've used that word a little bit here. And it's a pretty popular concept in witchcraft for protection and curse magic. And I also want to preface this by saying, kind of like you did earlier, like I don't, I haven't actually practiced a binding spell. I don't often work in this medium in my own practice. So this is just from book and online and pop culture Mm. research so listeners if you're interested in this magic definitely um move beyond (laughs) this paragraph um for, for yourselves. But, um, one of my most favorite pop culture representations of a binding spell is from the 1996 movie, The Craft. And of course, it's my time to annually watch that. Um, but in a, an article on Medium by Lady Althea, the author writes in quote, for, Those of you who are not familiar with the movie, the art of binding and magic is a metaphysical way to guarantee that something will or won't happen. The idea behind that is that when you tie something up, it will stay tied up until the bond or cord is cut or broken. The craft showcases one of the few good uses for a binding spell, to stop someone from harming themselves or others. Much of the spell work done in this iconic movie is very accurate thanks to a little-known woman named Pat Devon. Pat Devon is a high priestess and public information officer of the Covenant of the Goddess and an elder priestess of the Dianic feminist separatist tradition. Back when Hollywood cared about integrity of the movies, Pat was hired by the filmmakers to ensure the film's accuracies when the characters performed Wicca-based witchcraft. Luckily for everyone, Pat was forward-thinking enough to change minor details of the spells in order to keep people from copying the movie and actually invoking unwanted spirits or doing harm to others. Binding spells are often cast through a string of words, though in some cases the words are replaced by a physical string. If you've ever been to a wedding and watched the bride or groom's hands or wrists get tied together in a symbolic knot, you guessed it, that's a form of binding. Ancient Greeks and Romans would often connect themselves to a god or goddess and use binding techniques for good luck in big events, such as a wedding or sporting event. Some forms of binding can have a similar effect to invoking a spirit. To a lesser extent, binding magic is what is used to charm an amulet or magical object. This is also similar to the magic one would use with an effigy or voodoo doll, like you mentioned, Kristen. Today, many people practice binding spells commonly by wrapping string, ribbon, or cord around a symbolic object while reciting a spell or chant after setting their intention. End quote. Of course, with all protection and hex magic, do a binding spell aware of all potential outcomes.
0: Magic makers, be warned. <laughs>
1: Another form of protection magic uh, that always comes up for me is salt. Um, I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but I've put salt on my altar and door frames and windows. I've once even made a salt circle for myself for a major ritual, which was a nightmare to clean off of my old wood floors, but um, mm-hmm. it's okay. I I shared a, makes for a great floor wash too, really. <laughs> I, I shared a, a salt shower ritual in our water magic episode as well. But to be honest, I'd never really thought much about its origins for uses in protection magic until we started doing the research for this episode. So I found these sources on Learn Religions, just a quick Google search on the history of salt in magic. But um, Mark Kurlansky's book, Salt, A World History, discusses how salt became as widely used as it is, because as it turns out, salt was actually pretty important in the grand scheme of human civilization. So, in the days prior to industrialization, the process of harvesting salt was time-consuming and labor-intensive. This meant that salt was a pretty valuable commodity, and only rich people could afford it. The Romans actually paid their soldiers with salt because it was so important for things like food preservation. In fact, the word salary has its root in the Latin word for salt. This also reminds me of the saying, worth their salt, which some of you may have heard before. And so, in addition to being an important and pricey bit of the material aspects of human living, salt began to find its way into the metaphysical and spiritual realm. It appears several times in the Old Testament, most notably in Genesis, in which Lot's wife is turned into a pillar of salt after disobeying God's commands. There are many records of uses across civilizations, and a few of these can be found in The Magic of the Horseshoe by folklorist Robert Means-Lawrence in 1898. He wrote, In parts of Germany, Normandy, and Scotland, salt is used in or around a butter churn to keep witches from souring the butter or harming the cow from which the cream was obtained. Irish folk remedies include the use of salt combined with a recitation of the Lord's Prayer to cure those who have been fairy-struck. A similar story comes from Bavaria and Ukraine, in which salt is used to determine if a child is bewitched. Egyptian caravans setting out on a journey across the desert used to perform a ritual that involved burning salt on hot coals, and this was done to ensure that evil spirits wouldn't get in the way of travelers. And in Ozark Magic and Folklore, Vance Rudolph writes, If someone spills the salt at dinner, it means a violent family quarrel is on the way. It's considered bad luck to lend salt to someone because it can lead to a feud between the borrower and the lender. A good way to avoid this problem is if you get a cup of salt from someone, pay it back with sugar or molasses instead. Interestingly, in parts of Northern England and Scotland, it is also seen as bad luck to lend salt because the person borrowing it can use it as a magical link to curse you. Salt can be used to detect the presence of witches. In the Ozarks, it's believed that witches don't eat salt, so if someone complains about a food being too salty, she might be regarded with suspicion. There is also a tale that bewitched cattle will not touch salt. Of course, as I mentioned, this witch loves salt. I also love including it in Kitchen Witch Magic, soups and other dishes. I love leaving it as an offering, working with it in scrubs or body washes when I need just a little bit of extra protection. So are you a salt witch, Kristen?
0: I mean, yes, of course. Uh, More so in the kitchen witchery Mm. uh, way like you just mentioned, but um, it's actually quite common here in the Azores just as a protective uh, folk practice to put salt in all four corners of your home um, and also to throw it out the door after someone leaves if you don't want them to return. Mm. Listeners, if any of you work with protection magic, salt spells, or have any thoughts on hexes and curses, let us know.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Baloo and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at k8baloo and at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog tamedwild.com tune into next
0: week's episode for another magical conversation. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time.